Betweenisode 10. Health insurance is not health care, and health care is not health. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Recently, I read a book by David Goldhill called Catastrophic Care, How American Healthcare Killed My Father and How We Can Fix It. Although I certainly don't agree with everything that Goldhill says, he caused probably the biggest forehead slap I've had in years. There's a massive fundamental element of our healthcare system that somehow has become so a priori, so taken as a complete truth that it is rarely, if ever, discussed as anything other than completely fixed and immovable. We don't talk about changing it. We talk about dealing with it, the symptoms or, or, or consequences of it. What am I talking about? I'm talking about health insurance. Not what health insurance consists of or doesn't consist of or the quality of it. I'm talking about health insurance by its very nature and its role in our health care industry. Because here's the thing. What's insurance? What insurance is supposed to be or what it means in every other industry uh, or every other facet of our lives is a risk pool. You know, we buy fire insurance or flood insurance in order to make sure that one catastrophic expense in one year doesn't decimate our finances. To be sure, health insurance does in fact pay for catastrophic care. I'm certainly not denying that. But bear with me. There was a Medicaid patient several years ago who was one of deemed one of the most costly Medicaid patients ever. And the cost of his care before his eventual death was about $2.1 million. So that's kind of a worst case scenario. You've got a patient who cost the system $2.1 million. If you do the math, though, and this was math that was done a couple of years ago, the average person, the average American in his or her lifetime is going to contribute about $1.2 million in premiums and contributions to the system. So what kind of insurance system needs $1.2 million in contributions from everybody when the most catastrophic imaginable risk costs around $2.1 million? I'll tell you what kind of health system. It's one that spends most of its money managing non-catastrophic claims and, of course, the associated administrative expenses. This is as per an article by Janet Adami and Tom McGinty in the Wall Street Journal in 2012. And this is the exact point that I'm trying to make. Health insurance really isn't insurance, if you think about it, if it pays for anticipated expenses. I mean, consider this. We all have homeowners insurance, for example, but if I... um smash the doorknob through the sheetrock by mistake, I'm not calling my insurance company to fix it. Or if the house needs painted, and I know the house is going to need painted every two years, I'm not calling the insurance company to pay for it. But the same thing is true with health insurance. If you have an annual checkup, like I go to the dentist twice a year, it's paid for by my insurance. 
that's an anticipated expense. There's a lot of things that are anticipated expenses. Certain medications, you take them every month. Or as I said, annual physicals, preventative care, pretty much of any kind. Those are anticipated expenses. So if you think about that, what health insurance is, is not insurance, but we're paying someone to pay someone on our behalf. And we all pay a lot for this, as we all are probably pretty familiar with. Profit caps for private insurance anyway are 20%. Generally speaking, that 20% is taken advantage of, which means we're paying somebody a 20% commission to pay somebody on our behalf. Instead of me just paying the dentist, I'm paying my insurance company to pay the dentist with a 20% fee surcharge on top of that. Would you choose this under any other circumstance? I mean, it's kind of weird. The average American spends about $1,000 a year paying their insurance carrier to pay their bills. But like, here's the weird part. We think that because we didn't pay for our annual physical exam, because it was entirely covered by insurance, we think that it's free. And we think that anything that's not covered is a problem with our insurance. Because we're not really connecting the dots between the expenses that are paid on our behalf and our premiums. I mean, every routine service that you use, trust me, you're paying for it in your premium. So that annual physical, those are included, rolled up in the cost of the premium that's going on. So they're not free. You're just paying for it in your monthly bill. In a sense, anything that you pay for out of pocket is not actually a failure of insurance. It's probably resulting in a lower premium because the second that your insurance covers it, your premium will go up cost plus 20%. I have discussed this notion at happy hour. And one response that I have heard, there's this sort of notion that somehow or another, somebody else is paying for the healthcare costs that there's no direct line between a healthcare cost and premiums. And to that, I would ask, who is this other who is paying for those costs? Really, who? Because if we confiscated all of the profits of all of these infamously greedy health insurance companies, that would actually pay for four days of healthcare for Americans at, at the current cost of healthcare consumption today. And if we added to that the profits of the 10 biggest pharma companies, that would actually pay for healthcare for another 13 days. In fact, if we confiscated all the profits of every American company in every industry, that would cover the healthcare at current rates, you know, at current consumption for seven months of healthcare expenses. There is nobody else. Right now, all healthcare costs are being paid for by us. I mentioned the $1.2 million number earlier that the average American throughout the course of our lives is going to contribute $1.2 million to the cost of healthcare in this country. It's us. We're the ones that are paying it. There is no fairy godmother here. It's a zero-sum game. The expenses that are used get paid for in our premiums or our taxes. The one thing to keep in mind here, which is something that you studied in school but then kind of forgot about, 
free for everyone is not the same as free for just me. The second that preventative care or some mandate that something gets paid for all of us happens is the second that it's free for nobody because everybody's premiums will go up, you know, or in the terms of Medicare, your taxes will go up in order to cover it for everybody. And if you think about things that way, insurance companies really have zero disincentive for not paying for things for everyone. You will notice they, in general, aside from maybe some token commentary, no insurance company really had a huge problem or any kind of pushback to any of the preventative care measures put in place lately. Why? Because if you cap insurance company profits at 20%, then in order for them to make more absolute dollars, they need costs to go up. So if they want to raise your premium, they have to make sure that the cost of your care, including all the things that are givens, increase because I can make more absolute dollars on a higher number. You know, a higher number times 20% is a bigger absolute number than a lower number times 20%, right? So insurance companies certainly have a rational financial interest in seeing costs go up. So you might not be surprised by the current economic trends in healthcare these days. The U.S. hit $3.1 trillion in healthcare spending in uh, 2015. That's $9,695 per person, an increase of 5.5%, according to federal estimates. Spending growth is expected to be about 5.3% year over year. The government estimates that healthcare will account for nearly 20% of the U.S. spending by 2024. And has this explosion in spending on healthcare led to improved healthcare? Well, it certainly led to an explosion in treatments and in bill more procedures. But I'm not necessarily sure I would be bold enough to state that your average consumer is getting 5.3% better care year over year. And really, no matter what anybody says, healthcare is a form of consumption. The more of our national income that goes into healthcare consumption, the less that's around for some people don't necessarily connect the dots between rising healthcare costs and decreasing investment in infrastructure, education, or any of the other government programs. The more money that goes into healthcare, the more money that's not available for everything else. But insurance companies are the ones that are supposed to be keeping costs down. Ha ha ha, says the economist. What about Medicare? For example, or, or Medicaid. Obviously, these are not private profit-based insurance companies. Maybe they are good at controlling costs. The issue there is that Medicare has done a fabulous job regulating the responses to its policies with ever more policies that don't really fix the underlying issues. Also, Medicare really, if you think about it, they're not driving care so much as documenting care after it happens. It's not like there's a hotline where that a patient can call up Medicare and they help that patient make informed medical decisions. That kind of responsibility still relies with the provider. So has Medicare, though, managed to cut costs with its policies? 
Here's just one example, which I think is telling. It's certainly an anecdote, but I do think it's an anecdote that's worth considering. Let's talk about DRGs. In 1983, the Reagan administration enacted one of a huge reform, probably one of the biggest in Medicare's history. It was called the Prospective Payment System, the PPS. And what it did is it switched inpatient hospital reimbursement from the traditional FFS, fee-for-service, to a payment called a Diagnosis-Related Group, or DRG. So basically, hospital got paid a fixed amount, depending on what the cause of was for an inpatient stay. In theory, what was supposed to happen there, PPS was supposed to switch the incentive for hospitals to keep patients as long as possible to treat them quickly and economically. This big change in reimbursement actually did drive extraordinarily large changes in the way that hospitals provided their treatment. From 1983 till today, the total number of days spent by Medicare patients in hospitals has actually declined by 40%, even with a 60% increase in Medicare enrollees. And in that time frame, the average length of an inpatient stay has shortened from about 10 days to just over five. That's a huge difference. Everyone credited the program with making huge strides and bending the curve. But here's the issue. What wound up happening, starting in 1983, the cost of a day in a hospital skyrocketed. So despite the fact that the number of inpatient days declined from about 112 million in 1983 to 66 million in 2010, the amount that Medicare paid per day rose from about $300 to about $1,800. So the simple fact is the amount paid to hospitals since DRGs were enacted has grown by 700%. So it reduced the number of days, but increased the cost by 700%. Hospitals raised their prices. But what's really interesting is that they raised their costs, in quotes, even more. So when the DRGs were enacted, hospitals were billing Medicare about $4,700 per discharge and accepting payments from the government of about $3,000, roughly about 65% of the bill. By 2010, hospitals were billing $40,000 per discharge, but accepting payments of only $9,500, which is less than 25% of the bill amount. Not only were hospitals earning six times their previous per day revenues, but somehow they managed to claim that Medicare is getting an even bigger deal than before. All of the policymakers involved in this Medicare operation are running around talking about how they've cut down the number of inpatient days and that they're only paying 20% of hospital costs, not considering the fact that perhaps those hospital costs are something to take a look at. Patients slash consumers are the only ones in the entire continuum with an actual real life vested interest to keep costs low. But we don't do it. Why? Because we're not thinking about the fact that what our insurance companies pay for is not free. Even if it's Medicare, the amount of healthcare service provided and the cost of that care just gets higher and higher and higher and higher. And nobody's really thinking about what are those costs? <laughs> what are we paying for there? Because everyone within the system has a vested interest to see that they keep growing. 
often what I hear is that we need insurance companies to help direct patient or consumer care, that consumers or patients are not particularly well equipped to judge the quality of the care that we are receiving. You know, how do we know? How does, how does an average patient know if the care was good or not? So we rely on, on an insurance company to fill that role. So I kind of alluded to this earlier, so you probably know where I'm headed. But if we are relying on an insurance company to figure out what, in quotes, effective care is for patients, then the first thing that you have to figure out is, what does effective care mean? And the second that you start asking questions like that is the second that you start grappling for a yes or no, one size fits all answer. What I might regard as effective care, you know, so say I I really, really like to watch television and I really think that the quality of my life or, or my health is perfectly fine if I have trouble walking around because I don't really value, say, walking around very much. And I like to drink scotch and smoke cigarettes. If I'm that individual, then what I would consider effective care might just be holding me at status quo for as long as possible. And I'm my life expectancy at whatever it is, which is lower than average, is perfectly fine with me. I might not regard it as particularly effective if, if someone's poking me and prodding me and yelling at me to go exercise because I don't want to and I don't see the need. Meanwhile, you've got somebody else who really regards mobility as super important and who wants to be very physically fit and strong. And that's very valuable to them. And they're willing to sacrifice gigantic steak dinners for the long-term health effects. Or consider this, say that someone is, does not have a long life expectancy and they've come down with some fatal ailment, like they've got cancer, and the doctor comes in and says, well, we're going to give you a, a $60,000 intervention. It's going to be painful. One person might think that it's very effective care to go forward with it because they value the extra two months of life that intervention may provide, and they are willing to deal with the pain Somebody else, on the other hand, might be like, you know, I want to take that $60,000. I want to go home and I want to fly in. I want to use the money to fly in all my grandchildren and I want to be surrounded with them and I want to die in peace and just give me some pain meds and be done with it. Oftentimes we talk about patients and their inability to judge the quality of care or make healthcare decisions. The question that is often not asked is, who is better? Who's better at that? Because it's Probably not insurance companies. How would you expect an insurance company to make very, very personal decisions for 300 million Americans? And that's a question which is pivotal right now, especially as we're considering how to adjust our healthcare system moving forward. At its core, the Affordable Care Act isn't really a healthcare overhaul, it's a health insurance bill. I mean, it didn't provide all Americans with health care or even health to be even more meta. <laughs> what it provided Americans with is health insurance. And health insurance is not a synonym for health care. And it's definitely not a synonym for health. Food for thought. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, 
you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.